Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. As the Senate Judiciary Committee continues with the fourth day of Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court, we'll look back over the week's questions and testimony. Democrats questioned Barrett about her conservative judicial record, her writings critical of the court's decision on the Affordable Care Act, and the role her personal views, including her stance on abortion, will play on the court. My personal views don't have anything to do with how I would decide cases, and I don't want anybody to be unclear about that. And then at 940, we'll look at California Proposition 23, which would require kidney dialysis clinics to have a medical doctor on site at all times, among other rules. That's all next after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In the past three days of confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett, Democratic senators focused on portraying Barrett as an extreme conservative and Republicans touted her credentials. Barrett, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit and a former law professor, spoke with ease about the Constitution, case precedent, and her originalist legal philosophy. She avoided questions about her legal views on issues that may face the Supreme Court, such as abortion rights, the legality of the Affordable Care Act, and whether she would recuse herself from deciding conflicts around the 2020 election. Joining us to discuss the ongoing confirmation hearings, Rory Little, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law and former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice, and welcome, Rory. Thank you, Michael. It's nice to be with you, even if it's virtual. Good to have you, virtually or otherwise, and also good to have Jacqueline Thompson, virtually, reporter for the National Law Journal, and good morning, Jacqueline Thompson. Good morning. Good morning to you, and thank you both for joining us. And uh, Jacqueline Thompson, let me begin with you. Um, this seems to be, in many people's minds, a done deal. That is the confirmation moving forward and essentially uh, being uh, ramrodded, as some put it. But nevertheless, the Democrats tried to shut things down with the Senate Judiciary hearing uh, because, presumably, of the uh, GOP slating October 22nd uh, over their objections. And they had just one uh, congressional representative, Dick Durbin, present. I'd like to get your read on whether or not it's even possible at this point that there could be some interference or some way to block this nomination. Yeah, you know, like you mentioned, it seems pretty difficult to see a path for Democrats uh, moving forward um, in terms of trying to block this nomination at this point. As you mentioned, Dick Derman, he was the only member of the Democrats who was present for a few minutes, at least at the start of this morning's hearing. He said, you know, we can't move forward on any business because we only have one member of the minority and Lindsey Graham effectively said too bad if Democrats were in charge, you would do the same exact thing. 
um, and committee rules, frankly, don't have as much uh, power in the Senate as the Senate rules themselves. Now, there was a bit of a talk back when both uh, Senator Mike Lee and Tom Tillis were in quarantine for testing positive for COVID uh, about whether or not that could have a potential impact on the committee vote for Barrett. Um, but now that they're both out, it seems that there's not really many obstacles that could come in the way. The only potential way I could see, uh, you know, the nomination getting prevented at this point is, you know, if we see other senators come down with COVID and they're unable to be on the Senate floor itself, which is where you have to be in order to cast a vote on the nomination, there's just no way to do it virtually. So, you know, but as long as everyone stays healthy and safe, uh, the Republicans have pretty much locked this up at this point. Rory Little, agree with that assessment? Uh, well, I certainly agree with it. Um, although we are living in an age when unexpected things keep happening. So uh, I'm not going to say it's a done deal. Uh, the vote on this for the committee is October 22nd. And then the floor vote will be sometime during the week of October 26th. Uh, that's a couple of weeks and there are things that could happen, including uh, this possibility of a number of senators getting COVID. They need all 50 of their votes to be present on the floor to, uh, to accept this nomination, to confirm it. Um, so even one member who can't be on the floor, and it'll be interesting to see if somebody does have COVID, whether they still come on the floor. I mean, there are all kinds of health concerns surrounding that. So uh, yeah, I think it looks like a train that's on the tracks and can't be stopped, but you never know. Well, there were many questions that came up during the hearings, and I want to take up some of them with both of you and with our listeners. And by the way, we do invite your participation in this uh, segment. You can join us, and I invite you to do that. Uh, you can be part of the program, and a way to do that, of course, is either joining us by phone or by email or uh, Twitter. And um, uh, let me give out the number, in fact, because we do want to hear from you. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Let us know what your response was to the confirmation hearings or any questions you might have. Again, the number to join us, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email us, forum at kqed.org. Jacqueline Thompson, let me go back to you and just get your reading on what really, for the most part, had to do with... Uh, Judge Barrett talking about the fact that uh, she's, well, she was calling balls and strikes, I guess you could say, is the way J uh, Chief Justice Roberts put it. In other words, she was impartial and had to remain impartial, and so she didn't ask questions. And I'd like to get your response to some of what we heard. Senator Feinstein actually asked her on Tuesday about her views on Roe v. Wade. Let's listen. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly decided? <clears throat> Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question. But again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda, because I'm not. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Um, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law and decide cases as they come. There it is again, uh, Jacqueline Thompson. We heard it over and over again, judicial independence. In fact, it goes back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and some of her testimony when she was being confirmed. But I'm curious to get your response to that, particularly in the light of the fact that she has certainly said she agrees with Anton Scalia on just about everything, and she he was her mentor. You know, I think her aligning herself with Anton Scalia actually ended up backfiring in a bit on her, uh, you know, when she at the White House Rose Garden ceremony, which is now 
infamous for other reasons, uh, you know, she said that Scalia's judicial philosophy was effectively her own. And as a result, we saw a lot of Democrats, including Dianne Feinstein, using that um, against her almost in the hearing and saying, you know, Scalia says this, what say you? It got to the point where she had to say, I am not Scalia. I am, I would be Justice Barrett. I would be my own person. I would rule in this own way. And, you know, she made it clear that she did not make any commitments to the president, to any members of his staff, to any uh, members of the committee um, in terms of how she would rule. And she also invoked, as you mentioned, Justice Ginsburg and saying that she's not going to you know, effectively tilt her cards and show how she might potentially rule in the court. And that really rubbed a lot of Democrats the wrong way. They pointed to past judicial nominees speaking on past court rulings and you know, indicating their judicial beliefs and their legal opinions. And, you know, it ended up in a point where we just frankly didn't learn very much about her coming out of these hearings. We heard a lot about originalism. We heard a lot about her personal beliefs. We heard a lot about the Affordable Care Act, but, you know, we didn't get exactly how she might be behaving on the court in the future. Well, and there's a kind of irony here, Rory Little, in that um, when... (laughs) When Lindsey Graham, the Senate Judiciary Chairman, actually praised her, he talked about her. Well, let's hear. This This is is the first time in American history that we've nominated a woman who's unashamedly pro-life and uh, embraces her faith without apology, and she's going to the court. The irony there, in many ways, Professor Little, is that Dianne Feinstein, Senator Feinstein, was sort of tiptoeing around. She talked about dogma in a another confirmation hearing to the appellate court with Amy Conan Barrett and uh, uh, did not, in fact, the Democrats did not even broach the whole idea of religion. And yet there it was from Lindsey Graham, pro-life, unabashedly. Uh, Yes, Michael, Uh, there are so many things, in my opinion, that are wrong with this particular hearing. Uh, It's hard to know where to start. But yeah, Lindsey Graham, who's in a very close Senate race, himself and so is trying very hard to look like he's just a neutral chairman of the committee running a fair hearing, uh, really let his guard down there. And he he said what out loud what everybody knows in some sense is that she is unabashedly pro-life. And then he said, and I want to tell the committee that we have arrived. He said, we, we meaning uh, maybe the Trump people or maybe the conservative right or maybe the religious right The Democrats assiduously avoided mentioning religion or her personal beliefs. Uh, And indeed, they asked her questions where she raised her personal beliefs. They asked her about racism, and she said, well, I've got two children who are black, and uh, so I'm concerned about racism. Uh, Thankfully, she finally did say uh, racism still exists in this society. But, you know, I'm sorry to jump ahead, Michael, but the entire hearing is wrong because of what happened to Merrick Garland four years ago. And that is, uh, that is what is wrong with this hearing. And, uh, you know, uh, this woman, uh, Amy Barrett, is simply a tool in a political battle that is quite uh, wrong and unhappy. Well, plus her opinions are all out there. I mean, for the most part, the death penalty opinions are not in line with church teachings either, her death penalty opinions. But I'm wondering if we could get to the Affordable Care Act uh, with you, Jacqueline Thompson. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about that. And let's hear uh, your thoughts in response to a question from Senator Dick Durbin on her past writings, which criticized the court for upholding the Affordable Care Act. This is cut three. 
Well, I am standing before the committee today saying that I have the integrity to act consistently with my oath and apply the law as the law, um, to approach the ACA and every other statute without bias, and I have not made any commitments or deals or anything like that. I'm, I'm not here on a mission to destroy the Affordable Care Act. I'm just here to apply the law and adhere to the rule of law. Uh, we know, Jacqueline Thompson, that uh, President Trump was saying, I'm going to put someone on the court who can do away with the Affordable Care Act, uh, for that matter, Roe versus Wade as well. But we also know that uh, she did criticize Justice Roberts, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in terms of his position on the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, she definitely did. Um, I do think it is important to note that it was on, um, you know, a different legal question. But the fact of the matter is, you know, she was critical of the Chief Justice's opinion, as are many Republicans, as are many Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, as they repeated over and over again. Mike Lee mentioned how he wrote a book about how upset he was over Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. Um, and, you know, I think it speaks a lot to how different justices have different approaches to different cases. Uh, if you look at the conservative justices, the original list, they are more about, you know, what the law, what the Constitution says and what the law itself says. And then you go to your more liberal justices, uh, you know, your Justice Breyers, Kagan, Sotomayors, they're more outcome based and they're more looking at the process and they're going to see whether or not the entire health care law could be struck down at that point and what impact that would have. Again, we're talking about the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett with Jacqueline Thompson, who's a reporter with the National Law Journal, and Rory Little, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law and former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. And we do want to hear from you, and we welcome your calls and emails. You can join us now by phone at 866-733-6786. That number again, toll-free, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. This is Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court confirmation hearings with Jacqueline Thompson of the National Law Journal and Rory Little of UC Hastings College of the Law. And let's bring a caller aboard here. Bill joins us. Bill, welcome. Uh, good morning. Thank you. Uh, three things. First off, uh, why has no one mentioned that but for John McCain voting down the repeal of ACA, there likely would be a million people dead of COVID? Number two, the Supreme Court tenure of lifetime appointments was supposed to be apolitical, to prevent politicization. Well, here we are. So therefore, this argues for term limits. Three, with regards to Amy Comey Barrett, assuming we take over the presidency, or I mean we, the Democrats, presidency, the Senate, and the House, could they not just legislate ACA DACA, uh, Department of Justice rule that a sitting president cannot be <laughs> indicted, so on and so on, including police brutality of, you know, people. Thank you. Thank you for weighing in, Bill. Good to hear from you. And uh, I thought we'd now hear from Senator Harris, who, of course, is on the Democratic ticket with Joe Biden. Uh, 
when she was asking about voting discrimination, actually gill- uh, grilling uh, Amy Coney Barrett on the topic of voting discrimination. This, I think, is cut 10. Do you agree with Chief Justice Roberts, who said voting discrimination still exists? No one doubts that. Do you agree with that statement? Senator Harris, I will not comment on what any justice said in opinion, whether an opinion is right or wrong or, or endorse that proposition. I want to get some responses to that, but before we do, um, there was something that Amy Barrett, uh, Coney Barrett said also about commitment that I'd like listeners to hear, and this is uh, cut 13, Dan. From my perspective, the most important thing is to say that I have never made a commitment, I've never been asked to make a commitment, and I hope that the committee would trust in my integrity not to even entertain such an idea, and that I wouldn't violate my oath if I were confirmed and heard that case. Now, that was her responding to President Trump's statements that he would nominate judges who would strike down the Affordable Care Act. But let's go right to the heart of this with you, Rory Little. I mean, in effect, uh, I don't know, you could call it avoidance or evasion, but it's one or the other. Well, I, I have to say, Senator Harris really deserves a little credit here. She, she, got, um, she asked the judge, Do, are you aware of what President Trump said he wanted in a Supreme Court nominee after you, judge, were put on his public list? And she said, oh, gee, I'm not really aware of anything that he said. That's just not credible. And, and this won't do any good because she'll have lifetime tenure and the, the caller's right. And all I can say is some justices change over time. So I'm, I'm in favor of life tenure. But um, she wasn't credible when she said she didn't know what the president even said after she was put on this public list. Um, and the idea that she wasn't able to say very obvious things, I think carries the precedent of we don't answer specific questions to kind of an even higher level than we've ever seen. I'm gonna read a comment from Bill who says, is there any evidence that Amy Coney Barrett's personal beliefs have ever influenced her ability to be an impartial juror? If not, this attack on her pro-life beliefs is pure speculation and we may well be surprised. Um, that's a possibility, Jacqueline Thompson, isn't it? We've been surprised with yeah. other, other jurists. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we have been surprised with other jurors in the past. And she said, you know, I will not let my personal beliefs influence me on the court. Um, that's I when I put on the robe, then I'm a judge and I look at everything through a legal opinion. And one opinion that's been repeatedly brought up during these hearings is a ruling that she made on the Seventh Circuit involving a, uh, a quote unquote bubble rule outside abortion clinics that basically said anti-abortion protesters can't be outside the clinic. Um, and she and Republicans have repeatedly pointed to that as evidence that she would not overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, but, it, you know, I don't think it's so much her pro-life stance that would cause concern here as much as her stance in approaching the Constitution and approaching the law here. Uh, the fact of the matter is a lot of originalists have indicated that they disagree with Roe v. Wade, like Justice Scalia, uh, as she is frequently tied herself to. And I think that probably is the best path in trying to evaluate how she would actually rule there as opposed to her pro-life stance, which is, you know, this is a political process. This is something that senators are going to raise. It doesn't necessarily mean it would influence her on the court, but it's definitely something that senators themselves can consider when voting whether or not to confirm her to the bench. Well, let me hear from another listener. Wynn joins us from Menlo Park. Wynn, welcome. Thank you. Um, I think that Sheldon Whitehouse was the star of the whole thing because his uh, the way he laid out the Abood case and the fact that the, 
the Supreme Court justices had actually opened the door in order to be able to get that uh, accomplished was absolutely startling. And I happened to look at her. She looked like a deer in the headlights because she didn't have a clue that somebody else on the Supreme Court could literally do some activist judging from the court. Yeah, Rory, let's talk about Sheldon Whitehouse's line of questioning. Uh, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but, you know, uh, essentially what he said was that behind the rush to fill this vacancy was corporate money and corporate interests and getting rid of regulations. Well, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that view. I thought that the Senate was very effective. You know, the idea that the personal beliefs of a justice don't affect the way they rule, I think, is a little bit naive. Um, personal beliefs do affect the way justices rule, although they try to follow the rule and they try to follow the text of the Constitution and all of that. Um, and, and the idea, we know that this judge signed a letter uh, saying that Roe should be overruled uh, and that Roe was wrong. Uh, now she says, oh, that was in my personal capacity and it was a long time ago, but it's not really speculation uh, when, you, when you think about that. Uh, justices have surprised us, but they don't surprise us very quickly. It usually takes a number of years before a justice surprises us. Took O'Connor, Justice O'Connor, a dozen years before she really came out in favor of sustaining Roe. Uh, that was surprising, but it took a while. Justice Blackman didn't change for a decade. So uh, I don't hold out any hope that Judge Barrett's going to be different than what we expect uh, in the next couple of years. Quick uh, response to you, Rory, from a listener named Davey. He says, why did every single Democrat bring up the Affordable Care Act? And I think the answer to that lies in the fact that there is a case that is going to come up uh, very soon where the Supreme Court is. And again, Sheldon Whitehouse brought that out as well in terms of uh, what underlying motives may be behind pushing this through as quickly. Um, but also, didn't this seem to be in many ways uh, a, a spectacle of electioneering, not only with upcoming Senate races, but the presidential race? And the Democrats are trying to make a good deal out of the Affordable Care Act being essentially shunted aside or, for that yeah, matter, destroyed. I, well, I completely agree. It is electioneering. And just as you know, uh, Senator Harris made that clear when she started her first set of remarks. She said, look, sit down and relax because I'm going to just talk to the people for the next 10 or 12 minutes. Uh, this ACA case is going to be argued on November 10th. And there's just no doubt that the president wants this rushed through in a really uh, wrong and hypocritical manner so that she is on the bench when that case is argued. If she's not on the bench, she can't come in and participate later. They'd have to re-argue it or decide it with a four to four eight justice court. Um, and, and he wants her on the bench for the inevitable post-election legal challenges that we're going to see. Uh, now, if there's a wide margin, those challenges may not go anywhere. But, you know, Bush versus Gore is still a bad memory for a lot of us. Uh, and, and that's why she's being rushed through. He thinks, Trump thinks, he is going to have a, a representative on that court. And all I can say is I hope she's right. I hope she does have the integrity to resist that sort of political pressure. And here's Matt who says, I don't even know what the purpose of these hearings are when she can just refuse to answer questions. Uh, well, one, I thought we'd hear a little bit um, about what she had to say about climate change. And I'm interested in getting your response to this, uh, if I could, Jacqueline Thompson, particularly in light of the fact that I'm looking at an email from a listener who brings up the fact, and I found this quite interesting myself, that Barrett's father worked for Shell Oil and said she was ignorant on climate change. Uh, and she said she didn't have an opinion. I, I don't know that that's a policy question, but um, your thoughts on that, and then we'll hear the cut. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if in this time and age, someone cannot have an opinion on climate change. It's just such a pervasive topic 
that absolutely we're constantly surrounded by and it's constantly a point of discussion. Sure, there are environmental regulations that come before the court all the time, but you know, I, I think this is another one of those instances that Democrats will repeatedly point to as her not answering a question that is just a fact as opposed to an opinion or a policy position. Well, I'd like our listeners to hear this cut. It's cut number nine, where uh, Senator Harris asks, uh, do you think climate change is happening? Do you believe that climate change is happening and it's threatening um, the air we breathe and the water we drink? Um, Senator, again, I was wondering where you were going with that. Um, you have asked me a series of questions like that are completely uncontroversial, like whether COVID-19 is infectious, whether smoking causes cancer, and then trying to analogize that to eliciting an opinion on me that is a very contentious matter, opinion from me, that is on a very contentious matter of public debate. Very little. What's your response to that? Well, I, I really think that um, what's the purpose of the hearings was asked by a listener. Uh, there is no purpose in these hearings if what we're trying to do is figure out how a justice may actually react to issues that are important on the public agenda today. Uh, the purpose of these hearings, you know, there weren't hearings. Uh, constitutionally, there's no hearings required. There weren't hearings until the 20th century. There weren't public hearings until the 1950s when suddenly senators wanted to ask nominees, do you agree with Brown versus Board of Education? Um, and then Bob Bork, Judge Bork, was nominated, gave some specific answers. Nobody liked the way he answered and he wasn't confirmed. And since then, people deny the most obvious things. So to deny climate change and to say science is, you know, is debatable. I thought Senator Harris was very effective in how she handled that. And we'll bring another caller on and that's you, Ken. Thank you for waiting. Join us, please. Hi, good morning. So I have a comment and a question. The comment is, is that um, I've been watching uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, for years uh, with multiple presidents simply stating that he wanted to stack the courts. He wanted that to be his legacy. And I think he's driving this more so than Trump. I think Trump's just not that smart. Um, but my question is, is there any method or mechanism in place to recall a justice if uh, the justice themselves is put in under nefarious circumstances such as what we're experiencing today? Yeah, Jacqueline Thompson, interesting question. This is uh, certainly Mitch McConnell, the engineer, along with Don McGahn and the Federalist Society. Uh, but uh, perhaps even more than President Trump, as the listener said in his comment. But what about that question about actually removing a sitting judge? Yeah, you know, justices have lifetime appointments, and that is currently the law of the land. There's now legislation that's been introduced to actually introduce term limits, which is something a previous listener called in about it would set 18-year term limits, um, try to depoliticize the issue. It's very as broad bipartisan support, but there are questions about its constitutionality. So there opens another Pandora's box. But, you know, the only way to remove a justice would be to impeach them, which is something that we've seen happen with judges in the past. Um, they can resign under ma massive public pressure if that becomes an instance as well. Um, but there's not really a way to, quote unquote, recall a judge or a justice from their position once they're seated. Let me read some comments that are coming in. Jack writes, even though we revere the Constitution, the originalists 
should acknowledge and bear in mind that it was written by white male property owners and their perspective might not always be that democratic. And Todd writes, did anyone ask Amy Coney Barrett how she felt about her judgment on accepting the nomination during an election? Is she okay with the cloud this will carry over her lifetime appointment? Let that stand as a rhetorical question. And uh, let me go back to you uh, just for a second on this next email, Jacqueline Thompson. Uh, Galia asks, if Judge Barrett is committed to life from conception and natural death, can she be relied upon to oppose the death penalty? Uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure on that one. The Seventh Circuit doesn't get that many death penalty cases, but, um, you know, they have in the past. Uh, you know, we see other Catholic justices on the court rule in favor of the death penalty um, and the government's ability to do so. And I think you see that happen a lot in the conservative movement where there is uh, that you know, split that other people point to and saying, oh, you support, uh, pro, you're pro-life, but you're also pro-death penalty and trying to say, you know, how do you <laughs> rationalize those two perspectives? Um, and, you know, it, I don't think it's really tripped up other conservatives in the past, and I don't see it doing the same for her in the future. And let me shift gears for a moment with you, Rory Little. Um, Rory Little, again, is professor UC Hastings College of the Law. There was a Supreme Court decision that just came down to shut down the 2020 census count, and this has some pretty strong and profound implications. It's really all about deadlines, but it can really be in some ways about money and, and power and, and particularly representation. could mean White House officials may actually use population numbers to determine representation in the House of Representatives, but also uh, those numbers would be used in state and local governments as well, rather than what the Census Bureau would dictate. Yeah, the census issues are another huge issue that's happening right now that's very political. Uh, a district court judge there in Northern California, uh, Lucy Coe, enjoined the census department from stopping their count early. Uh, it really only is a couple of weeks now, but October 31st was the deadline that she said they had to stick to. Um, but we all actually know that the reason this is happening is because the president has announced he wants a policy of excluding all undocumented persons from the count. That's unconstitutional. The Constitution says the census has to be based on the number of whole persons. Uh, now, there, there is a background of slavery uh, in that and racism, and, and your caller is right. Uh, they counted uh, enslaved people as only three-fifths of a person. But whole persons includes everybody. And, and that's where this is going. And yesterday or two days ago, the Supreme Court intervened and stopped uh, the district judge's injunction from taking effect, uh, that itself may not have such an effect on accuracy, although people really are fighting that it does. But if it allows the president to exclude undocumented people, that'll affect California in a huge way, as well as some other states. Because of course, we have lots of undocumented people in our state. They're valuable taxpayers in most cases. And uh, to not count them will really harm the representative uh, and the state and local funding issues that California benefits from. There is a constitutional mandate, as you said, that uh, the census ought to include all residents. And uh, the effect on this, uh, what do you think, uh, Jacqueline Thompson, with respect to, well, public confidence? Uh, I think there has been, and I think this is totally accurate to say, um, a huge attempt by the Trump administration since day one to try and undermine faith in the census and try to, you know, detract people from being able to respond it. You can go back to the 
voter fraud commission. You can go back to Chris Kobach. You can go back to the litigation over a citizenship question on the census. Uh, and then, you know, this more recent memo on trying to keep undocumented immigrants from the total apportionment, you can go to this attempt now to end census operations early. The census has been a major target of the Trump administration since day one. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I'm sure there has been a huge dent in public confidence in it and what the ultimate results will be, and that we're gonna feel the lingering effects of that for years to come because that data is so valuable to states, to jurisdictions, to municipalities in determining their funding. And we're gonna see the census be a huge hot button topic for many years to come. Well, the legal battle over it will continue. It is continuing, but this uh, essentially means it undercuts uh, the people hardest to reach, minorities and the poor and young people, mostly in urban areas. And that means less potential power for Democrats and more for Republicans. It's uh, pretty clear cut. Let me thank both of you for your excellent analysis and responses. Rory Little again, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law and former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you, Rory. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Jacqueline Thompson. Jacqueline Thompson is a reporter with the National Law Journal. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Michael. And we are going to have another segment, continue our election coverage, and we're going to actually uh, find out what the pros and cons are on Proposition 23, which has to do with dialysis clinics. That's right up ahead. Stay tuned for that. I'm Michael Krasner. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.